Welcome to Sinner Saint Sister. I'm Allison Sullivan, and this is a podcast about sometimes saving the world and sometimes just surviving in it. In the next hour or so, we will nurture our friendships, explore our joy, shake our fists, all while trying to serve our God, and most likely, all while wearing pajamas. I hope you hear something that lets you know you are loved and helps you love one another. Welcome to Center Saint Sister. Every day we are bombarded to pursue the things of this world. It is the American dream after all. Work, make a lot of money, acquire a lot of things, ensure your pain-free living so that eventually you don't have to work anymore, and then die. But what if the work we really pursued wasn't anything we needed to retire from? What if being a missionary wasn't about where we lived? What if we actually lived out our faith instead of just talking about it? What if we ached for the world God created and called good to be set right? What if we hated injustice? What if we saw a need and stopped like the Good Samaritan? What if the way our lives were arranged allowed for more intentionality to do just that? Because deep down inside, we know that we were made for more than the American dream. We know instinctively that there is a bigger purpose in life. There is a deep desire within us. And we may have covered it up with our fear of failure, but it's still there. The desire to make a difference. We know instinctively that serving is what leads to an abundant life. It's almost countercultural, and yet there seems to be this law that is written on our hearts that says, Do something. There is a pull for us to be used for others. I know firsthand the feeling that I get from serving trumps any tangible or material value. I know that any time I have given sacrificially using my gifts has benefited me just as much as it has any perceived receiver. And I know that service has gotten me out of many destructive ruts. God intended us to care for one another. We weren't created to be lone rangers. We're a pack animal, if you will, designed for community. Put simply, we need each other. And when you do something that you're designed to do, eat, exercise, help someone else, it feels good to do it because our brains, our fascinating brains, fire off signals and release chemicals that we either interpret as good or bad and then repeat or quit the activity. And listen, I'm not sciencey. This is the worst science lesson in the history of science lessons. But when we help one another, happy chemicals are released in our brain because biologically it is in our best interest to serve one another. Social trust helping each other, establishing community. It just makes sense. We were born helpless. Our survival depends on the needs of others. It feels good when we do the things that promote our well-being and safety. My husband and I took our kids to Honduras, and as a family, we were serving at a hospital deep in the mountains with tiny villages surrounding, filled with people who needed doctors but rarely got to see one. When a new doctor would come in, the other doctors would get excited because new fresh eyes to see cases was so helpful to them. So when my husband got there, they brought in a difficult case just for him, an infection that kept returning. It was a little boy who lived at the city dump, and they hadn't quite been able to find the source of his infection. He had a swollen knee. The other docs had tapped it, and it came back showing a high white blood cell count, which of course meant infection. Seth, in his effort to find out why there was this infection, thought about it a little bit and then asked the boy to open his mouth, and sure enough, there was a nasty broken tooth. 
Now, I do not pretend to know why a tooth makes a knee swollen, and nor do I claim that I explained any of that correctly. All I know is that my husband left feeling like he had done good work that day. He came home from his day of work with a sly grin on his face. He walked through the door, and he asked me enthusiastically if I knew how much the Sullivan family had made that day. He answered before I could, zero dollars, and I've never felt better about a day's work. It all just feels good to be used in this way. We also serve because it's symbiotic. When we serve out of love, using our unique giftings with no stipulations, no expectations of anything in return, it no longer matters what we get out of it. It's rewarding in and of itself, and we are never left untouched because of it. With that kind of serving, no one involved gets out unchanged. Regardless of what end we're on, the giving, the receiving, no one comes out of it the same. My husband is the best thing that has ever happened to me. I say that unequivocally, and I mean it. However, our first year of marriage was a little rocky. We had moved from Japan, and we were living in San Diego, which, with its beaches and zillion-dollar homes and perfect weather, frankly, it felt nothing like home, my piece of Texas that I loved. I felt far away, and the one person that I had to rely on was really kind of ticking me off. We were missing each other. A lot. It was a lonely time for me. I remember one day after work, I taught middle school at the time. I went downtown to just walk around because I didn't feel like going home just yet. In downtown, there were always people asking for money, holding up their signs. And this time, as I walked those streets avoiding my life, for the first time, I felt a kinship. And so I did something that I'd never done before. I sat down next to someone who was asking for money. She had a little dog with her, so it was easy to make conversation. Her sign, it said everyone needs a little grace every now and then. And I happened to have a pocket full of quarters because I would sometimes bribe my unruly students with them. She had on a little too much eyeliner, so I liked her right away. But really, it was her smile that led me to do such a thing. I sat down next to her. She looked at me, and she said, Hey there, darling. I smiled, probably a bit wearily, and asked her how she was doing. And she said, Oh, me? I'm great. How are you, darling? And for some reason... Maybe it was the eyeliner. Maybe it was that she called me darling. I told her the truth. I told her I wasn't sure that my marriage was going to make it. I told her I didn't understand how two people could love each other so fiercely and yet hurt each other so deeply. I told her I was lonely and that I wanted to go home. I told her I wanted to start over. A redo. I needed a redo. And you know what she did? She hugged me. She didn't say a word. Her eyes told me that she understood exactly how I felt, though. That everything that I had just said was part of her story, too. And she hugged me. It was kind of awkward after that, because I didn't know what to say anymore, and it seemed that she had committed to not saying anything. Maybe somewhere along her story, she had learned that that was best. So I reached in my pocket, and I gave her a handful of quarters. She took them, and she patted me on the knee, and I talked to her dog a little bit, and then I said I should probably get going. And as I stood up, she asked me my name. When I told her, she said she would pray for me. Can you believe that? The person asking for change. My eyes welled up and I asked her name. Ruth. Her name was Ruth. I told her I would pray for her too. And as I walked away, she said, The answer's in hope, honey. Everybody needs a second chance every now and then. You can't give up hope. And when I think back over the course of my life, it's true. During the hard parts, I've never run out of hope. I knew things would get better. I hoped that they would. 
So who was on the receiving end that day? Ruth, she might have borrowed some of my money, but I borrowed some of her hope. Symbiotic. I definitely got the better end of that deal. York University published a study a few years back in which participants were asked to behave helpfully or considerately toward another person for just a few minutes every day. And after six minutes, participants reported much more happiness than the people in the control group. So not only is doing good deeds sure to spike our happy meters, but we know that there are physical benefits too. And as I've lived life and hurt and healed and watched my loved ones do the same, serving others is an important but perhaps underemphasized part of the healing process. Healing. And doesn't it make sense that if doing something nice for someone else leaves us feeling good about ourselves and positive about our place in the world, shouldn't we do it to heal? We could all benefit from increased positive emotions in our lives. But particularly, someone stuck in a rut. Couldn't this be a crucial aspect of getting out of that rut? I call the summer that my third child came, Summergeddon, and it was the closest that I had ever gotten to needing medical attention for depression. I got the baby blues. And it wasn't just for a day or two, but it was for a couple of months. And my symptoms were this, not talking to anyone. There were no exceptions Moses could have called. And lots and lots of crying. Crying because some women had to parent alone. Crying because we ran out of milk. Crying because some babies are hungry. Crying because there was a shriveled up grape in the back of our fruit crisper in the fridge. I was sad that it spent all that time and effort growing to be a good plump grape, avoiding pesky insects and birds to just decay alone completely unappreciated. One morning, during a particularly low point, low energy, low motivation, low optimism, I remember sitting on the toilet crying, of course, and I received an emergency text. It was one of my best friends needing to talk. She needed to talk because her marriage was ending and I snapped out of it. I had something she needed, and I snapped out of it. That was it. And I certainly don't mean to oversimplify depression, but I know for me, in that season, offering myself up, working towards someone else's healing, it was the beginning of my own. And the hows and the whys of service, it might all just be common sense, but sometimes even common sense needs pointing out to make us realize that we already knew it. Oh yeah, Service does make me feel grateful. Service does build courage and promote selflessness. Oh yeah, service does inherently feel good and bless everyone involved and gets me out of my funks. As I've thought back and reflected on those moments, the actions, the achievements that have brought me the most satisfaction, deep satisfaction, not necessarily moments that were the most fun or most pleasant, but actions and achievements that left me satisfied in a really deep and lasting way, I've realized that they've all come from feeling useful. And isn't it true that we find the most satisfaction in having made the best use of our abilities, employing our talents, being kind and helpful to others? In our service, it doesn't have to be dramatic. Of course, it's great if it is, but we don't need to single-handedly dig a clean water well overseas to make a difference. Our smile makes a difference. Service, it works in concentric circles, starting with our families and our friends and then our neighbors and our community members, and then eventually globally. And I have felt the most at peace when I feel that I'm providing something, just something, in each circle. Marge Piercy, at the end of a poem entitled To Be of Use, writes this, Greek amphoras for wine or oil, opi vases that held corn, are put in museums, but you know that they were made to be used. The pitcher cries for water to carry, 
and a person for work that is real. What is the work that is real for you? Each one of us is uniquely gifted. Each one of us is uniquely placed within this human fabric. And each one of us has our own real work to do. And our deepest satisfaction comes from being able to do it. We are the most fulfilled when we enter into our highest uses. From the book of Matthew, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is my friend Chris. Chris is brave and ambitious. With wise eyes, he sees needs around him in his community and in this world and generously steps in, and in a very short amount of time, has become my dear friend. Chris! Hey. Hi. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. Yeah, good to be here. This is long overdue. Yeah, well, the longer we wait, the more enjoyable it is. Yeah, the... anticipation, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. I'm so grateful to be friends with you. I feel like our circles were kind of overlapping for a while, and then finally the time was right. Yeah. We're on this the... committee together. Yeah. And, um, sorry, I'm out of breath. Yeah, you... <laughs> It's the fastest pencil gather I've ever seen. Easy. So I'm I'm so excited to have you on because you are just a national treasure. Uh, thank you, you are an author. You have founded a nonprofit. You're a world record holder. You run like marathons on the daily. <laughs> You've gone viral for a ton of things. You ran for mayor at the age of 19. And you just, my favorite of all, you have this innate pull for the underdog. Mm. And there are just so, I just basically want to be like you <laughs> when I grow up. Well, you are two kinds. <laughs> well, but lest anyone think you're too perfect. It's true. You just showed up to my house in your house shoes. I know, my house shoes. Which, <laughs> on accident. Not on purpose. I've got a day full of activities. I scrambled out of the house. So I, the one thing that I really want listeners to know about you, because in addition to all of these amazing titles that you hold and things that you've done. I know that I left out a million. Um, we are on a group. We're in a group mm. together and we weren't quite friends yet. I think we had, we maybe knew of each other, yeah. but I sent an email to the group and you responded and you replied all. And you said, I've been watching your work from afar for a while mm. and am just an admirer. I've just, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm rooting you on. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's really nice. Let me double check who this person is, yeah. which was, is crazy now to think back on that. And so I like look at you on Facebook and I'm like, oh, oh my gosh. I mean, all of these things come uh, yeah. up, you know, all of this sure. list that I just said come up. And I'm like, and he told me that he's been admiring my work. So in addition to all of these things, you're so humble. You're so oh. gracious. You're such a giver. And I really want the people to know that too. Thanks. Yeah, I don't know that humility is a, a word used very often for me. If I have to fight, for, <laughs> I have to fight for humility to I be understand super that. honest. But uh, I do think we're we're all a mix of some of our best and worst. Absolutely. And, and yeah, I think. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Yeah. It's, um, yeah so yes. I teach yoga, and in this pose, it's humble warrior, mm. and. I say that all the time. Yeah. I'm like hands turned up and yeah. eyes turned or eyes turned down, hands turned up to receive, but strong active legs because humility's hard. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, okay, I wanna I guess I wanna start off. There's so many things to talk about. This is 
we could absolutely do part one, part two, but instead I'm just going to have you on next season too. That's great. So we'll, so we'll just get through what we get through today and then, and see what happens. Um, Let's talk about your book really quick. I'm disrupting for good because there's something about that title that I'm just immediately in. Mm. I'm like disrupting for good. Yes, please. This is the most Jesus like, you know, holy rebel disrupting for good. Can you tell me about that title? Can you tell me about the word disrupt? Yeah. So, you know, I think I've always struggled to find language around who I am and why I am the way that I am. There's really no one in my family that's like me. I have a grandfather that was killed in Vietnam that I think when I piece all the pieces together, it was probably, he was the person that I most like as far as shared most of my characteristics. And so I've always, as I've gotten older, I felt a greater sense of loss of never knowing him because it feels like I would know myself more if I could see him in his life. But So I've always struggled some with language of how to express or describe or talk about why I am the way that I am. And then a friend, Chris White, who works at the Flippin' Group, sent me an email one day and it was University of Southern California had a new degree in disruption. It's like a bachelor's degree in disruption. And he basically said, I read this and immediately thought of you. I know you don't need any more degrees, but it just (laughs) made me think of you. And it was like just this light in my head. I was like, that's what I've been doing. Like running for mayor at 19 and running all these marathons and all these things I've been doing with Mercy Project, et cetera. It was like, I've been disrupting. Like that's, that's, and it wasn't always for good. (laughs) I joke in my, in my, when I do keynotes on this topic that I understand how some people have reservations around this word because when I was a little kid, if it was my Sunday school teachers talking to me about disruption, there was no good in that right it was it's always a negative but but the word disruption is actually neutral it's just to change the normal progress of something Mm. and so that can be bad it can be chaotic right if if things are going fine and we jump in the middle of it which Mm -hmm. we do all Mm -hmm. sometimes Mm -hmm. that's disrupting Mm -hmm. but it's also on the other hand it can be for good and i use these examples all the time you know i use a picture in my keynote of Two water fountains, one that says white and above it, and the other one says colored above it. And I just say somebody had to disrupt. This was the normal progress of something. Everyone at the time thought this is just the way things are. Yeah. Someone, many someones, had to step in and say, like, no, there, there's a better way. And then I use pictures of women that are marching around for the right to vote in 1919, which this year is the 100th anniversary of women gaining the right to vote. And you know, I said it was totally normal at the time. Like, of course women can't vote. I mean, they were viewed as second-class citizens. They weren't intelligent enough to vote. So, so a lot of women had to say, no, 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 this isn't okay. There has to be a better way. And so out of that, I came up with two definitions of disrupt, one of which I use much more often than the other, and that is a disruptor is someone who's uncomfortable with a current truth. Yeah. So they show up and take action until a new and better truth is born. Mm. And I think for what's been meaningful to me around this work is that it's truly applicable any anyone, anywhere. I mean, I've talked to big, big bosses at big companies are thinking about this, like what within our own organization, with our own industry is uncomfortable. 
all the way down to a, a stay-at-home mom. Sure. Or a teenager. Yeah. A 13 or 14. We all have those things that make us uncomfortable. Absolutely. And we tend to just bury those things or to ignore those things or to minimize those things to our own peril. Mm-hmm. And we certainly, if we deal with them, it's in the way of, yeah, I wish this weren't like it, like this. Mm-hmm. Or I sure wish this was better. Sure mm-hmm. wish this was different. Mm-hmm. And so really the whole book is trying to get people passionate about, uh, inspired by these other stories of disruption from a five-year-old to a almost 90-year-old. So sort of making the case anyone anywhere can choose to, to be a disruptor for good. But then actually walking people through, what does it look like to become a disruptor? And it is being self-reflective enough to be honest about those truths that make mm-hmm. us uncomfortable, which mm-hmm. most of us never even get to that, right. first of all. Right, right, right. Second, it is actually creating actionable steps to own those uncomfortable truths and to say, okay, I saw a quote last week I can't take credit for. It said something like, um, we either change it or we choose it. Hmm. And it was like, oh, like that's yeah. a gut yeah. punch. Like yeah. if you don't like the way something is, you either make the change or you acknowledge that you're choosing that thing actually as the path. And then the last thing is just to persist, uh, which I always say is going to be a title of a future book all about persistence because it's the not sexy part of change that nobody likes right. to think about. It's waking up as motivated three, four, five seven days from now as we are today to, right. to do what that change is. And that's what I love about running. Huh. You never run a good marathon on one workout. You never run a bad marathon on, on one workout. It's accumulation of hundreds Absolutely. of workouts. Yeah. And each one has a place. Yeah. N- none will cripple you and none will compel yeah. you to the finish line. Yeah. They collectively, and this yeah. is our faith too, right? Yeah. Is, uh, there's no one day we fall in love with Jesus. Yeah. Um, I mean, we have that moment, a sure, lot of sure, us, sure. that we, yeah. we no, became true. more inclined. It's the slow work of God. Yeah, it, it, which is also the slow work of the enemy, mm. which I think yeah. is the, if we're not intentional. Sure, a just, Yeah, just as the slow work of God can be transformative in ways we didn't even see coming, mm-hmm. the slow work of the enemy can do the same thing. And, and we wake up one day and we, we don't like who we are and we yeah. don't know how we got there and we don't right. know how to get back. Right, right, right. And of course, God can redeem that, but only if we're intentional about yeah. acknowledging what led us to be there in yeah. the first place. So, so that's really what disruption is about. Uh, one of my favorite things about your book, as you empower people mm. to um, forge these unimagined futures, yeah. like you say, yeah. um, one of my favorite things about how you do it is that, you know, Jesus chose this ragtag bunch of men, mm-hmm. right? Like this real motley yeah. crew um, to be his disciples. And, you know, there's a tax collector and a zealot and some fishermen in between. Yeah. And, you know, these men were probably far more likely to break into an arm wrestling match than they were some totally. scholarly Absolutely. argument, you know. Yeah. But Jesus chose this deliberately yeah. because he seemed to think that the message that God was for everyone was best relayed by everyday folks. Right. And so I just, as I'm as I'm reading your book, you know, you made a very deliberate decision to highlight really normal people. Yeah. Um, and so your book talks about this radical service, mm. but it talks about it with normal people. Sure. So and and so the idea there is that you don't have to wait to become someone different. That's right. To change your family, to change your community, yeah. to change the world. Tell me how you made that decision. Yeah, I think my first thought was if I want to sell a bunch of books, I need to find famous people that will sure. I can somehow yeah. connive into doing an interview with me and and certainly there are famous people that have been disruptive. 
in in good ways. But it, I, that felt really untrue to just even the message of disruption. Sure, yeah. And that is, if, if the idea of disruption is that all you have to be able to do to be a disruptor is be willing to engage, mm-hmm. then I probably should just find regular folk who don't have a bunch of advantages yeah. or, or even perceived advantages because I didn't want people to write it off as not, not for them. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, this is probably one of my greatest joys slash frustrations in life is how I don't think the average person believes they're capable of Absolutely. anything near the amount of yeah. things that I relate we're to that so of. much yeah. because I find it overwhelming. It's like I can read a great book with a great message. Yeah. I can hear an inspiring talk with an inspiring message. Yeah. And then because I can, I can easily be overwhelmed right. because, oh, well, the person, that person was just kind of born supernaturally right. great. Yeah, sure. And I'm, you know, just me. And right. so then it's too easy to dismiss everything that they just said because they are they were born fantastic and yeah. I was born me. Which, of course, is not true, of right? Of course not, right. And, I mean, I tell people all the time, actually, in my speeches, I graduated 40th percentile of my high school class at AM Consolidated High School. I had zero scholarship offers. I couldn't get into Texas A&M directly. Mm-hmm. I was co-enrolled between A&M and Blinn and before I transferred and did my under finish in seminary. But I, I was, I mean, 100% at best, I was average, in the middle. Uh, my parents should have won awards for the most times. Teachers use the word potential in parent-teacher <laughs> conferences. I mean... I had dozens of referrals in high school. Yeah. Like I was not. Yeah. I mean, I was not a great student. Now, teachers. Now, I'm friends with a bunch of my old teachers, and they'll say like, "Oh, we could always tell you could be something." I'm like, like a guy who goes to jail. That's what you could <laughs> tell I could be. Like, let's not clean this up and polish this now. No one. Was, now that it all turned yeah, out yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. No one was giving me <laughs> prizes in high school for like, we know you're gonna be okay. I mean, I still meet people that are frankly shocked that I've that I've turned out, you know, okay, a, a citizen who pays his taxes. And it, for me, it was my freshman year of college at the light just came on. Mm. And <laughs> I ran for mayor of College Station. I got third out of five. I ran my first marathon without training and finished it. And I was hired at the end of that summer after my freshman year to direct a camp for inner city kids. That was a big so year for you. 600 campers, some of whom were just a year or two younger than me, sure. and 50 college-age staff. So all of that happened between February and August of one year. Wow. And it was completely terrifying, yeah. and it was completely transformative because yeah. what happened was that these walls that restricted me, mm-hmm. I realized were made out of paper mache. Yeah. And, you know, everyone my whole life had always said I could be or do anything I wanted to be or do, but I never actually saw anyone doing that. Yeah, right. All the adults in my life sure. love them. Great people. Yes, in jobs they hate. In jobs they don't like. Just just move one step at a time to move to the next Absolutely. step. And it was like... So I heard that message over and over. You always hear that as a kid. Like, you could be and do anything you want to be. And it's like, sure. show me that. Like, yeah. can someone show me? What does me? that mean? What does that look like? Yeah, like, so we're bothered by hunger or we don't think kids should be slaves. Like, so what's what's the plan here, you know? And none of that. And so in six months, it was like, truly, that was what lit the spark of, of dynamite for me. It was like, no, wait. I can be or do anything I want to. I freaking just ran for mayor. Yeah. And I showed up in 
History 101 at Blinn in khakis and a button-up shirt every day. When people ask me why I was dressing up, it's because I'm a mayoral candidate in the city of College Station. Yeah. I mean, it was like, it was awesome. I mean, it was so liberating yeah. to to be like, I can I can run for mayor at 19. And I can take it serious and I can go back and read all the council minutes and I can go interview with the editorial board of the Eagle who I thought hated me and they actually end up basically saying he'll be a force to be reckoned with in yeah. the future. If he yes. was older, we might recommend him. I mean, <laughs> it was like the people who beat me in the election were two 70-year-old guys who'd yeah. been in city politics their whole life. It's like, this is amazing. Like, yeah. this is all. And then yeah. the same thing at the camp when they, you know, the board at the time takes a huge risk yeah, and moves from a 26-year-old full-time camp director to a 19-year-old part-time. It basically says, we see something in you and we want that good fruit we see we want you to give all of that to this camp and to Mm. all these kids Mm -hmm. and it was like oh my gosh I don't know if I can do that Mm -hmm. like it was the first time I feel like what I was being asked to do was too big for Chris Field Mm -hmm. and I had to say okay God like if you want me to do this thing I'm gonna have to you're gonna have to be in this corner with me and of course he was like that's what I do is I get in mm -hmm. people's corners Mm -hmm. especially Mm -hmm. when you're at your sort of feel like you can't do it and carry things you weren't meant yeah to carry. and when you go speak for 600 kids a year who are walking in with cigarette burns on their arms because they're abused at home and you know you were having to pull lice out of kids hair so they can stay at camp it takes 24 hours to mm-hmm. say i've got women sitting in a nurse's office delousing kids for 24 hours because we don't want to send them home yeah. because we feel like when will they ever get a chance to come to camp again right. Like when you're in a place like that and you say, God, I don't know if I can do this. It's God is like, oh, I'm here for this. Yeah. Like, yeah. I am here this has my for name all over. this. Yes. Yeah. And so, I mean, that was like four of the greatest yeah. years of my life. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was incredible. You're right, though, because everything in our society teaches us to use our talents for ourselves. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, make a lot of money. Right. Retire. Yeah. Be comfortable, right, and then die. Yeah. So we don't see a lot of people, yeah, living this really extravagant, sacrificial, sure. passion-filled lives. We we don't really see that, but we know inherently that we were made for more. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of what you're talking about is get hurtling that fear of failure. Yeah. Because even if you take on something bigger than you, yeah, you maybe maybe you do get punched in the mouth. Right. Maybe you do. Sure. But you know what happens is you realize. I'm still standing. That's right. I got punched. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I'm still here. Yeah, totally. And it's okay. Right. And so we're going to keep going. Will you talk a little bit about the fear of failure and, and the need to hurdle that at least one good time to yeah. keep on going? Yeah. I mean, I think the truth is that we're way too scared of failing. Yeah. And I think America... We choose battles we know we can win. Yeah. And in America, because we are so safe... See, people before us and other generations didn't get to choose whether they wanted to be safe. Like the young men in in World War II didn't get to decide if they were going to be safe or not. And people in other countries don't get to decide if they're going to be safe or not, right? My my kids in Ghana who are waking up diving into murky waters, even though they don't know how to swim, to untangle fishing boats, they don't get to decide, you know, I don't know if I've had enough summers of swim lessons. I'm probably going to opt this one out. Mm-hmm. And there's a little place for me to sit, and I don't have to feel bad about sitting out. There's still little toys and games for me to play. Like, so we've created a whole culture around safety and and yes. minimizing risk, comfort. We've got insurance for our pets. Mm-hmm. Every time you book a flight, there's insurance just in case. 
like you know our parents and grandparents it was like if you you just missed the flight like <laughs> if your leg falls off and you can't make the flight you don't get your $300 back you just missed the flight because it's called life that's what happened but we're, we've insured everything at this point to the extent that we feel like we're so insulated from risk that we can we can go through our day and we never took a risk the whole day. We, we literally never actually took a single real risk. And so for me, I say in the book, my life was changed forever when my desire to do great things and live meaningfully outgrew my fear of failure. Absolutely. And that's the number one underlined quote in my the Kindle version of my book is that that seems to resonate with people. And I think we have to be honest and say – you know, we all have these warring factions that are like, oh, I want to live a life of purpose. Yeah. I don't want to mess up and fail. Right. And at some point, we have, one of those has to win because the truth yeah. is when when neither of those win, actually the the one wins that is not right. fearing. Right? right. The fear is what wins. Yeah. Um, you, you know, so, so for me, it's just like we just got to be honest. Like this is an analogy I use a lot. I think it's fascinating. If we fall down, if we trip and fall in a, an empty room, our cheeks don't flush. Mm-hmm. But if we fall down in a crowded hallway mm-hmm. or a room full of people, especially if it's people we know, mm-hmm. our cheeks will flush, right? The only difference is that we felt shame about the fall. And the fall was just the same. It hurt us just the same or it didn't hurt us just the same. Mm-hmm. We got up both times. It didn't change our lives, right? Like no one remembers three days later. I mean, it's just not the way that it works. We're not. But our cheeks flush because we feel shame because other people saw us mm-hmm. fall. So it's not actually that we're scared of failing. Yeah. It's that we're scared of being perceived as perceived someone who failed. As, yeah. And in doing that, we give up our courage and our bravery to people that have no business holding it yeah. for us. <laughs> because the people who we actually should let hold our courage and bravery are the ones begging us to hold it with us and for us and to fall with us yes. and to fall forward and cheering us on. Those people... I mean, that's those are the very people that we love the most, and we know yeah, they're going to still be standing there when yes. we do. And we're counting. That's why we love them. That's why we is love because them. we know and we've watched them in our lives be the people who are there even when we fail. But we we we've got this precious gift, and we we hand it to people who don't deserve. They've not earned that precious mm-hmm. gift, right? Mm-hmm. And we say, hey, I really care what you think, so I'm not going to do this. And it's of course all subconscious. Mm-hmm. But if we're letting people on social media or random acquaintances drive our courage, man, we've lost we've lost our north star at that yeah. at that point. And so I think that's a lot of it for me. You started talking, and I started humming "Eye of the Tiger." Mm. We trade our passion for glory. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, it's totally true. Um, you know what I love about your long list of accomplishments and you know the things that you've taken on is that. You have that, and so people can say, "Okay, he's not just talking the talk. Yeah. Like there is action there. Sure. You are taking on things that are bigger than you." And what I love about it, as far as our faith and preaching the gospel, mm. is that we can't just sit around and praise Jesus's name. Right? It's not enough sure. to know the facts and figures of his life because Satan knows this too, right? Sure. But instead, Jesus showed us a new way. Mm. There is a there's a new way to live out the yeah. gospel he proclaimed. And so church membership isn't declining. I mean, our world isn't not being changed because we're not sitting around not talking about Jesus That's enough. Right. We're doing that. Yeah, totally. The reason that the world isn't being changed is because we're not doing what right. Jesus did. Right. So I think that as we 
you know, kind of think about it's not Jesus was Lord and then he died, right. but Jesus is Lord yeah, right absolutely. now, ruling sure. over nations, Lord. Yeah. You know, when we, when we accept that sonship, mm. that daughtership, now go out, mm-hmm. go do it. Yeah. I am with you, yeah. you know, and I don't mean to make any of that sound easy because please, I mean, sure. he took on the most powerful people in society without backing down. Right. He risked being completely misunderstood, yeah. you know, in order to yeah, tell the truth. Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah. And he didn't care a bit about his reputation as he like went to the margins and, and made outcasts right. his friends, you know. Um, and obviously, like he went around, you know, putting people's ears back on who were yeah. trying to yeah, arrest yeah, yeah, yeah. him and then ultimately begged forgiveness right. for the people who killed him. That's so I'm not, right. I don't mean to make any of that sure. sound easy. Right. But I do think that, that in living out the Jesus way, I think that the first thing is instead of that audience of many that make your cheeks flush when yeah, you fall, that's right. it's an audience of one. Totally. This is the holy nudge that yeah. you've given me. What's the holy nudge? What is it that makes you come alive? What is it that makes yeah. you, what is it that pisses you off? Yeah, that's I right. gotta do something yeah, about yeah, yeah. this. You know, what is that? Yeah. That's your holy nudge to go yep. and do, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. And I think, I mean, this is where in America right now, I feel like we're at a really, really tricky place is that we've, when politics gets so in bed with Jesus, or it really when Jesus is drug into bed with politics, and we can't tell up and down and left and right anymore, I mean, I've struggled with even identifying as a, a Christian publicly because that has come to mean something mm-hmm. that has very little to do with Jesus and and everything to do with power and with control and with safety and with rightness and and so i think we've overvalued parts of the bible significantly and certainly we've undervalued the gospels from the standpoint of just trying to explain away uh, some of the hard stuff that jesus you know says and, and does and i think the truth is what america needs is prophetic voices to absolutely to to tell the truth and and here's the thing prophets get killed so i think that's just that's just reality like prophets die and usually not by their own choosing Mm -hmm. and it's because people don't like to hear hard stuff Mm -hmm. and i i think that when I think about people in my life that are most instructive, it's the people who love me enough to tell me the hard things. Mm-hmm. And there's very few people on this list. I mean, frankly, there's someone I was thinking and praying about on my run this morning. Mm-hmm. I don't particularly care for this person. Like, I wouldn't choose to engage them deeply as a friend just because we're just we have a lot of things about us that are not the same but there's been a handful of times that they were the only person who had the guts to tell me the truth and it makes my respect for them like astoundingly high wow like off the my respect for them is off the charts and i find i find myself wanting to be with them interesting because they're one of the few people who yes. will tell me the truth and that is so critical, particularly as, you know, you read this little bio and it's all true and fine, but as I've had the chance to be in front of more people and as my platform has grown, which is a gift from God, certainly, and I want to steward it well, the huge downside to that is 
so have the voices just saying, wow, 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 wow. And the the voices of people saying, are you sure? Yeah. And was that of the Lord? Uh-huh. And, and so I find myself drawn to... Yeah. Those people that I know are—they're not impressed yeah. by Chris Field. That they—they right. they, or or that they demand more from yeah. me, and they're not satisfied with like, sure, this is fine what yeah. you did, but what about this? And yeah. like, where was your heart when that happened? And are you gonna, you know, ask for forgiveness for this thing mm-hmm. you did? And yeah, I think a friend who loves you enough to tell you the truth and that you love enough to receive it is worth a thousand friends who yeah. just say all the right things all the time prophets are called to awkward in between spaces and they kind of sit right in the middle from where we've been and and where Mm. we're going and you do such a good job chris um online you know we have this whole social media thing you know Mm. and we live in a really contentious time it's like people's opinions are all around us and um Social media has obviously taken that to a whole new level because 15 years ago, we weren't yelling from our porches, mm. I disagree with you, right. you know, fake news. Yeah. <laughs> and people have lost context yes, because of that. So totally. it can be a really hateful place. Absolutely. It can be a beautiful place too. Sure. I love social media. Sure. And you've just done such a beautiful job standing in that awkward in-between space. How do you make decisions about what you're going to post mm. on, what you're not going to post yeah. on? Because you can't do it all. You can't take yeah. on every fight, right? Sure. Yeah. And I'll, I'll be honest, I feel like, pretty uncomfortable even like thinking of myself prophetically i mean Mm. i I don't that's not a title i would you know use myself it's one people have said to me and i appreciate that but it's it it is uncomfortable i mean the truth is you said this in a post introducing a guest a couple weeks ago and that is i'll never be conservative enough for my conservative friends and i'll never be Mm -hmm. progressive enough or liberal enough for Mm -hmm. my liberal friends and and that kind of sucks because both sides are telling you that you're selling out. Yes. Right? And both it's sides. Lonely. Yeah, both sides are like, really? You know, like, that's all we get from you. And it's like, yeah. Okay, so what, what, where I think I find the most value in social media is I feel like there's this overwhelming need for nuance. Mm. And I feel like when we can, when, when people say to me, the, one of the greatest compliments I've ever gotten is when people say to me, I was waiting for you to say something about this. Yeah, I, yeah. And that's why, and that's just happened in the last two or three years. Mm-hmm. And that's why I try really hard not to just sit and blast something out of anger on, on social right, media. to not be reactive. Yeah, just to... To, to pray s- twice and speak once. Yeah, and just to be honest about saying like, what is the other side of this? And when, and we've lost that. I mean, when we, you know, when we've, when, I mean, I, sometimes in tongue in cheek, I'll say things like, you know, this is my biannual reminder that you can both believe black people are not treated fairly by the police and also be grateful for policemen and women who do their jobs well. Right. Those two things do not stand in contrast yes. to each other. You can have both. But I think that's a microcosm of of every hard topic, yeah. right? That we could that we could talk about. Everyone's talking about Kanye West, you mm-hmm, know, yeah. right now, and it's like, it, you know, I think it was Matt Morton that said, I really appreciate. He said something about, you know, he he wants to stay in the place of like um, something about hopeful hopeful optimism or something like that. Sure. Not there's no way this could be true, and also not wow. Yeah. <laughs> a famous person. Like, you yeah. know, but he's like, I'd like to be in the place of hopeful optimism, yeah. but not a sign over, overvaluing a, a star's conversion yeah. any more than some lady on 
in downtown Bryan who decided to follow Jesus this weekend, but also not dismissing him because we know more of his life and story than we would just the lady in downtown Bryan who gave her life to Jesus, right? And so I think finding that nuance in stories is really where I've found found myself comfortable is, is finding that, trying to find that sweet spot of, you know what 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 are both sides of the story, yeah. and, and, but then sometimes just like there is not a second side of the story. Yeah. Like when you when you say you know when you call a third world country a shithole mm-hmm. country, like I'm gonna call President Trump out when he does that, right. and I, it's not because I'm anti Republican or it's not because I mm-hmm. don't think there's been some parts of the economy that have been mm-hmm. positive. It's not because I voted for Hillary Clinton, because I didn't. I didn't even vote in the last election because I was so disgusted. But the, the point is, I'm going to say like, hey, you know what? No one should talk to people like that. Yeah. It's just not a nice thing to say. Yeah. Just just don't be mean. Like, yeah. And the same way I would, I do and would say the same thing about about other people, sure. right? And Just calling them like you say. Just, yeah, and sometimes it's like there's no... And admitting when you're conflicted. Yeah, I, there I is, feel like, there is nuance people, there, right? Yeah, I think people appreciate that. Yeah, that there is. Uh, every one of us has nuance in our mm-hmm. lives. And it's never as simple as mm-hmm. well, this is absolutely... It's, mm-hmm. it's You know, you're, you're preparing for tests... When you're a kid, and they always tell you that avoid the tricks mm. when they say always or never. Yeah. You know, on the yeah. test questions, yeah. be be careful. Yes. It's like, hey, you know what? Same thing. Yeah. Same thing in grown up land. Mm-hmm. When people use always and never, beware. Yeah. Beware. Yeah. They're probably not right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm wary of people who are so certain. <laughs> yeah. Of course. About anything. My, I have this fun analogy that, that ends up coming up a lot, but my husband was coaching T-ball, mm. which I know I just finished you can relate to. T-ball, yeah. Again. <laughs> and it was when our kids were really little yeah. and they are butchering totally. the fundamentals yeah, of baseball. There are right? no fundamentals. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, you have one kid out, you know, picking flowers. You've got a little girl doing cartwheels over here. Somebody's running the bases the wrong way. Yeah. And yet at the end of every single game, they all rush to him and they want to know what's the score. Yeah. Coach? What's the score yeah, yeah. every single Did time. We win? And it's hilarious yeah. because he's like, you are butchering <laughs> yeah. the fundamentals of right. baseball. And yet you want to know, can I stand the tallest That's right. now? Yeah. You know, and, and I think that we can apply this to our faith where it's like, we're just butchering the fundamentals. Yeah, we're just it, not in, yeah. loving our God supremely. We're not loving others wildly. And yet we want to stand the tallest mm. in our smallest concentric circle. That's right. And it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just pain. It's the problem is it, it, it crushes our witness to the world. Absolutely, because, they see our sin over our savior. Yeah, and I mean, truly, it's it, Jesus wasn't a complex guy. If we can't love our neighbor, there's certainly like, what are the chances that anyone's ever going to feel love from us, right? right? But I, do, I, I've never sat in a church service where we went down a list of America's greatest enemies, enemies. and prayed and prayed since and and wept for them and and mm-hmm. the, and wept for their salvation mm-hmm. and for their for the holiness that we we know lives inside of them if yeah. we believe as pro-life people yeah. that God created everyone and and is in in that and okay so speaking of mercy I want to wrap up here yeah. I want you to tell us everything you can about mercy project yeah <laughs> yeah so the the short version of the story for for time is I was preaching at a church in Dallas and I was probably mildly depressed although I had no context and I was never diagnosed but it's a really hard season I wasn't a great I wasn't a great 
pastor. I, I joke, but it's really not untrue. I was a great preacher. I was not a great pastor. Mm-hmm. So I was good at giving sermons. Mm-hmm. I was not good at loving my church well. And I, I was 26, and you can imagine, take my passion and energy and put it into a very conservative, um, mm. dying church it was it was a bad it was a bad combo and i didn't have the maturity the spiritual maturity or just the personal maturity to go at the pace of the church i wanted them to go at my pace and that's mm-hmm. just not it wasn't fair to the church and so i was very i didn't realize i was looking for my next adventure but i look back now and can see like i think i was hungry for something so i read a book about child trafficking really it was a memoir not about child trafficking, about a woman who lost her son um, at age 15 to a sudden undetectable heart ailment. And it was her journey of grief. And part of that journey of grief ended up with them having money that came out of his death because people donated. And they went and went to Ghana and helped rescue some kids out of human trafficking. So this was 2009. I didn't even know human trafficking existed. It wasn't the buzz that it is now. Not even close. Sure, yeah. So even though I'd done a ton of work in urban America with poor people, I was like, what? There's kids who are slaves in the world? Like, I didn't know this was a thing. And so I Googled and called the author. And three months later, I got off a plane with her in Ghana, Africa. And I went out on the world's largest man-made lake and sat in a boat with a little boy named um, Tomas. And he was nine years old and he was a slave. And I just, I remember... I remember how overwhelming it felt to my wife was pregnant with a baby at home and I thought man what what different lives these two kids are going to have and by no doing of their own like my daughter's done nothing to deserve where she's going to be born and certainly I did nothing to deserve where I was going to be born and here's a kid whose mom certainly loves him as much as my wife is going to love our daughter and yet because something I don't know he here he is you know working 14 hours a day on a fishing boat and so I went back and Stacey's big pregnant first baby we're in our little suburbs in Dallas and I'm just like baby we like I can't I can't live like I cannot live and just carry on like I just can't do my life and she was so gracious to be like what what needs to happen whatever needs needs to happen I'm like well we're gonna we're gonna raise some money and we're gonna give it away and and I'm gonna feel, you know, I'm gonna feel bad. I thought like we did our part, so we did that. We raised like seventy-five thousand dollars in nine months, and we gave it all away. And but in that nine months, I went to Ghana two more times, and in those two times, I discovered this uncomfortable truth, which was no one was really getting at the root causes of why this child trafficking was happening. There was lots of um, good-hearted, uh, goodwill good nature, desire to help, but really no one who was systemically getting in and, and changing why are kids child slaves in the first place. And so I didn't know why that was. I just knew that solutions I was seeing did not match the complexity of the problem, which should always be our first red flag, by the way, in <laughs> ministry and, and nonprofits. But so I, I, I was really fortunate to have a guy, a man who was uh, it's a cousin of my wife's. I hardly knew him. Very successful businessman, consultant, runs his own consulting company, and just, I mean, world-renowned in Houston. They were kind of looking for a mission, and they had kids who were teenagers, five teenagers, and they really wanted, I love this about them, they said, we want our family story to not be that we've been successful. 
We want our kids to see and feel a different family story. And to do that, it needs to cost us something. And so he came alongside me and basically said, you, you know, I, I do not have the faith or the energy you do to think you're really going to solve this problem. You know, he's like, I'm just, I'm too far down the road. I'm jaded. I'm tired. But I know how to solve problems. And if you commit to, to taking to Ghana what we discover together as a way to solve this problem, I'll commit to giving you my, my best self and becoming preoccupied with this problem with you. We basically went into Ghana nine years ago, this last September 1st. I quit my job and we started Mercy Project with the goal of helping to eradicate child trafficking in Ghana. And so what we've done, fast forward, we took about a year to really understand why it's happening and and discovered it's happening because poverty, poverty's the bad guys. Moms and dads, mostly moms without men, Three, four, five, six kids, husbands have died or left, basically choosing every day which kid to feed and which one not to feed. And so they, they understand you can send your kids to work on the lake uh, for someone else. You'll get some small money in, in trade exchange, and at least the child will be able to have a little bit of food every day. Mm. And the moms always, to a, to a mom, tell us the goal was is and was save up enough money to go back and get the kid. You know, like that's always the goal. I, I can't go and do the work though if I've got four or five kids at home and they need food. And of course, none of them ever have the money, you know, by the time we find them. So so what we've done, we've gone into these communities, 14 fishing communities, and we've taught them a new way of fishing. So we teach them how to do aquaculture instead of using the labor of the children. So. It, we, we, we invite them to come on the journey with us. They, we teach them how to build their own cages. We basically tell them we're gifting you a business and your responsibility is to run the business with ethics and with integrity and to work hard. And if you do, this cage will make more money than what you were doing with the children. And in exchange, we need you to voluntarily release these children to go back into their families. And then we reunite the kids back into their family. So I think just last just last week we rescued our 158th child and then once they're re- reintegrated we have a really holistic process about 15 staff in Ghana so we're actively involved in the lives of those kids. We've never had a child retrafficked which we're mm. incredibly proud of. Yeah. Um, a lot of statistics across Ghana like 50% of kids retrafficked when they're just delivered back to their families without this holistic yeah. process. So wow. we made the, really made the commitment several years ago to go deeper than wide. Yeah. And just from a trying to be transformational standpoint mm-hmm. we feel like that's that's really where transformation happens mm-hmm. is in ensuring transformation and success for a handful of families hunt well now hundreds but instead of thousands of light touches it's sure. hundreds of deep touches and yeah. so our social workers are incredible and we partner with the local church and we partner with the local school and we sort of got this triangle of people that are watching out for the best interests of the kid we've got child sponsors which is a huge part of our program and and a, and a place if your people are listening and they care like this is the place we struggle the most now is because we're we're rescuing so many more kids now we've outgrown our little mm-hmm. group so we constantly have kids who need to be sponsored mm-hmm. and so yeah so that's the work of Mercy Jeez. Project summed up and here's it's you been know fun. we you hear child you hear trafficking yeah child slavery right and you look up to the top of this mountain mm. and you feel paralyzed totally. by it because you're like i can't do anything about yeah that. Oh, yeah absolutely but you had a moment in a boat with tomas mm-hmm. 
you, God gave you that. Totally. And so you took a step. Yeah. And then you took another step yeah. and then you took another step. And so we, as your friends, get to look at you climb this mountain mm. and say, with my whole heart, thank you. Mm. You know, thank you. Yeah. And I have my own mountain, you that's know, right. and, and that's your mountain. Totally. And I get to thank you for it. Yeah. And we are surrounded by mountains with each other's names on them Absolutely. that are in need of our gifts. Yeah. And you're courageous, you're creative, you're passionate, you have audacity, mm. <laughs> you're risky. And I just don't think there's any other, I don't think there's a better way to change this world than to empower people mm. to um, embrace their callings yeah. and then motivate them to make a difference. And totally. I'm just so thankful for your work. Tell yeah. everyone where to find you. Yeah, so mercyproject.net is our work in Ghana. And of course, we love anyone to join in or participate. I feel super fortunate that we have such incredible support from so many, so many people and hundreds of people that thousands over the last nine years that have walked alongside of us and you know I always try to remind those people anyone who's ever given every time we have a rescue that their fingerprints are all over that that good work that we've done and I wish I could load everybody up who's ever given a mercy project in a into an airplane and take them over and we could meet all the kids but that's that and then meetchrisfield.com is my kind of personal website where it just um, has more information about my speaking and the book and launching a new website here in a few weeks actually so but I have one up right now in workshops I'm yeah, excited to I have a yeah. little we have a racial reconciliation group and we want to cool. come as a group yeah to workshop. totally yeah. yeah so I love I have a lot of passions I mean a lot of things we didn't even touch today of course just of like course. you Allison yeah. I mean just lots of things I care about but certainly very very near the top of the list is is convincing people of how wonderful and gifted they really are mm-hmm. and then to to cheer them on as they leverage that gifting which I didn't yeah. give them of course yeah. I'm just naming in them yes, yes there's power in naming things a hundred percent words create worlds yeah. as one of my yeah. preaching professors mm. said and I've always hung on to that and the disruption workshops you know give me a great chance to do that and I'm grateful for you and for your voice mm. and for your tribe of probably mostly women that um, follow along and as the husband of a amazing woman i just want to you know i just want to cheer women on to keep even in their these long hard messy days of mothering to not buy into or believe that they're not still giving good gifts to the world and to if they need to create space outside the home to do that to do that and if they don't feel like creating space outside the home that that they know that what they're doing is enough and that it's good and that's right. Thank you, Chris Field. Yeah, it of is course. all my honor to watch along as he blesses your work. Thanks. Thanks so for grateful all to you have do. you on. Yeah, thank you. Perfect. Thank you. Yep. My best friend and I certainly don't have all the answers, but that's never stopped us when it comes to matters of the heart from trying to comprehend, evaluate, analyze, apply, and synthesize. Wait. Is that Bloom's taxonomy? I knew we were onto something. This is me, my best friend Kristen, and your questions. Beefy beef beef. <laughs> if only they could see my silent shimmy as I'm trying I to come know. up with something cute to say. Yeah. Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, okay, so question listener. First of all, she starts it off with a salutation. She says, 
Hi, beefies. No one's ever called this beefies so before. Cute. I know. Yeah. Um, okay, she says, what are the biggest ways that you live for the Lord? I know, it's kind of broad, isn't Deep. it? <laughs> um, the, uh, I would say the biggest decision that I've made recently is probably to add a child to our home through adoption. Yep, fostering um, for sure for us. Absolutely. I, it feels outrageous. It, like every now and then, Seth and I will have this moment where we're like, that's a baby. Mm-hmm. And he's from China. Mm-hmm. And he has Down syndrome. And he is sleeping in our bed. He is your son. Yes. He's a honey. But, it, but there are moments where we get um, kind of taken aback by the, dis, the decision that we made. And it was certainly not easy at the time. Um, it's not easy now. But it felt like um, the right thing to do and just to avoid sounding like really noble um, there were probably some really good reasons that we did that and then there were probably some really prideful reasons that we did that I like that we have an adopted child in our home I like how that makes me look you know wow yeah I love your authenticity, but as your lawyer, I might instruct you to not reveal these inner thoughts to the masses. No, but I think no. that there are good motivations and bad motivations to anything God-sized. Of course. You know, and so um, what an enemy would love for us to do is to just not do it. Right. You know, and so he would love to get in the back door somehow with, you know, sneaky ways in that says, oh, well, these are prideful reasons that I want to do this. Let's just not do it. You know, when the truth is, um, I think God is really compassionate. He knows our tendencies better than anybody to be like, hey, you know, there are good reasons and fleshly ones um, that you want to do this. Let's let's focus on the good ones. Right. And there's so many people in the world that will tell you that that's too big, too crazy, too much. And um, I will never forget driving home from meeting with the director of the Methodist Children Home, which is the group through which we foster. And I was so like struck by this woman and, and the work that she was doing, the call that she had. Mm-hmm. And I was like, these women are so amazing, babe. And um, I just went, I was like sobbing, like we just are going to have to give them money or maybe I could do some free legal work for them because they're incredible. And I remember, remember ex- <laughs> I remember exactly where I was standing. You were sobbing. You were completely inconsolable uh-huh. about the work that these people were doing. And I'm dying laughing. And I'm like, there's zero doubt that foster is in your future. Like, and I was like, shut your mouth. I can say that right now through my tears because I hadn't <laughs> even like... It was just so important for me to be surrounded by, or really by you first, and then a handful of other people that said, like, this isn't crazy, this is something that you, or it is crazy, but it's crazy for Jesus or whatever. Like, it's a crazy (laughs) call that only you have right now, and um, we should, you know, keep our minds open to that, because otherwise Mm -hmm. it would have been immediately shut, because it was just ludicrous, something we'd never talked about or ever thought about. And And that's what happens. You get this, this prick or this pang or this, you know, point of entry, and then you start praying and the Lord just keeps showing up. Right. Yeah. Um, It's just about staying open. mm -hmm. You, you were going to say something about how one choice leads to another. Oh yeah. I feel like with, you know, just little things of responding to 
calls. I think it's about practicing, you know? So sometimes if you do one thing that feels uncomfortable or um, unexpected or untraditional or whatever that feeling is, and then you see that you can do it and that it, how it makes you feel and how it, how something that should have been difficult was actually easier than it, you expected it to be. And so I feel like sometimes just taking like a small step, yeah. you know, I talk about sometimes like within the fostering conversation, like we just said, like, we'll go to a meeting, you know? Right, right, right. Um, Staring at the top of a mountain is always paralyzing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Beef. Thank you, listener. We love you. Love you. Bye. I've never met anyone like Mary. Well, technically I've never met Mary. You see we're internet friends, but don't let that fool you. This internet connection runs deep. Mary is so many things all at the same time. With one sentence, she can make me laugh, cry, think, and deeply, deeply feel. There's just something about Mary. You'll see. When we think of living radically for others, we tend to think of Dorothy Day or Mother Teresa people whose entire lives were spent in the service of the poorest of the poor. We may want to emulate them and find it difficult. I know I sometimes find myself thinking things like, Mother Teresa didn't have to be at home in time to pick up her kids from the bus, or Dorothy Day didn't have a grown child with special needs tagging along beside her. While doing radical works outside the home is important and desirable, there is a temptation to feel like our own family is getting in the way of our works. That's when our family, and especially our kids, become the work itself. Nothing is more radical than patiently listening to a seven-year-old tell you every detail of a story they read at school. Nothing is more radical than wiping crumbs off the table and, instead of grumbling about how messy the kids are, saying a prayer of thanksgiving for the opportunity to serve your family. Nothing is more radical than taking a walk after dinner with your kids and stopping to listen to the birds. Nobody looks at these acts and congratulates you for them. No one will see them as radical. But serving our families with love is in fact one of the most difficult things to do, especially when we've set our sights on seemingly loftier, more public goals. The very invisibility of them is what makes them so radical. Dear God, we thank you for the gift of Jesus who came into this world as a living sacrifice. We look to him to know how to organize our lives, and in all his time on earth, he laid his life completely in your will. We pray, Father, that we become great examples of our Lord Jesus, that we love and serve those around us who need our gifts, who need our offerings of love, and that we do so not on our own power or our own reserves, but that we use the love that you gave us first, that we experience that love so completely that we can't help but overflow with divine service. Lord Jesus, we praise you for fulfilling the Father's will. May your life of love and service be our guide. Help us, God, to love beyond measure without expectations or limitations, just like you. May we gather our time and our gifts and our resources to analyze what it is that breaks our hearts or what it is that makes our fists clench. Help us to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit so that we know where to extend our love and our support and our blessings. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
And for this episode, a special thank you to Chris Field. Go to mercyproject.net or meetchrisfield.com to give generously to Mercy Project, to buy his book, Disrupting for Good, or to book him for your next event. Thank you to Pamela Anthony Cutright and Chen Redfield for music. Thank you to Kristen Kelly and Mary Bishop. For more of Mary's writing, head to madeforordinarytime.wordpress.com. Center Saint Sister now has a Patreon page. Please consider supporting Center Saint Sister by searching for Allison Sullivan on patreon.com. Many episodes are now only available for patrons. Send us your questions at centersaintsister at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at Allison M. Sully. Don't forget to review, like, and subscribe, and tune in next week.